When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It is a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 337. We're recording on Friday, October 31st, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from BookRiot.com. It's Halloween. I don't it think we've ever had a Halloween recording. I don't think we have either. It's Thursday. I got that part wrong in the intro notes. Not Friday. Did I say Thursday, or did I read you the You said copy? Friday. You okay. just read the copy. It's fine. All right. We're uh, existing outside of time and space today. <laughs> and I'm celebrating Halloween wearing a ridiculous headband. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, there you go. That'd be nice. <laughs> Halloween, probably the least audio-friendly of the holidays. You know, I, mean, I, I guess you could do so. some Howling Wolf uh, background stuff, but mm-hmm. uh, most of it is costumes. Um, so here we are. It's the, we're in the middle of fall. Um, November, it's right around the corner. A lot of news this week. Before we, well, let's see. We had some, I had the follow-up I was going to do. Mm. Oh, um, Chapters, excerpts, I ask people. And again, some of it is probably selection bias. The people who care emailed and the people who don't didn't, I think. But more emails than I would have thought, people saying, Mm. you know what, I really do like chapter excerpts. I read them all the time. Interesting. um, As a way of deciding what I'm going to read. You know, I, I think there did seem to be a common theme of people who are especially attuned to writing style, not just... And it doesn't seem to be about quality necessarily, but there's some writing styles they just don't like. Um, so they're saying, you know, if it's a certain kind of style, about as about as specific as that, frankly, to be honest with you, mm. what the responses were. But they're 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 worried about something, some style choice that an author could make that is beyond the pale of what they're interested in reading. And the chapter lets them know. I have to say, I'm not that attuned to style selection outside of if the writing is good, but I don't even think a chapter excerpt generally is enough for me to even know. So I thought that was an interesting yeah, kind of Yeah, that's interesting. So they're mostly or largely using it to screen out something that they're not I wanting think to so. read rather I than so. get them hooked into something. Yeah. And okay. I, I don't know if it's like, you know, you're at the ice cream store and you get a taste of it. You know, you get a little mm-hmm. scooper taste. Yeah. I always wonder, are people... Are people looking for negatives or positives? Are they making sure they like it or are they making sure they don't like it? And I think in this case, mm-hmm. they're making sure they don't like it. I never do samples at the ice cream place. I don't know. I feel like that's, you a, don't? that's some sort of per- Never, ever, ever, ever. Never. Why? Why not? No, I just don't. Uh, well, I guess. I have this look I, of incredulity on my well, face Well, I guess right here's now. the thing. Here's the thing. I select from the old man flavors because you know what they are. <laughs> Uh They're toffee, butter pecan, you know, Mm. this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And if I, am I ever going to have one that I'm like, that sucks? Like, it's going to be good. You're you're not going into new lands. So you don't need to. Yeah, I'm not an exploratory ice cream eater. 
Okay. Um, th- except for Salt and Straw, which you've been to. Where and we, is amazing. We get, we get the flight. So you get, you know, mm-hmm. four scoops or we generally get two s- flights of four. And the whole thing's a tasting. So right. if you don't like it, you just move on to something else. But in terms of cones, dedicated cone selection, I, I go <laughs> into it with a pretty high certainty I'm going to like the thing because I'm not looking at, Got it. I don't I know, see. birthday cookie dough, cinnamon roll sprinkle or whatever it might be. All right. Or, you know, um, yeah, so I think this ice cream I, there, That's tasting- what I do. This well, that's weird, but okay. And this <laughs> <laughs> tasting analogy works then, because it is people being like, "This is something. This is an ice cream I haven't tasted before. Right. Let me take a sample and decide if I'm going to like it or not." Um, yes, I, think I wondered. That's right. Did the people mention what the style stuff was? I've been thinking about like no. I know like some people really hate second person narrative, and yeah, some people I can really imagine that. hate like when dialogue is not offset with quotation marks. And I wonder mm-hmm. if it's those kinds of things that like that disrupt the reading experience rather than something about like the way the language is styled um, that would put you off. If you have a readerly pet peeve like this that you would screen, that you would use a chapter excerpt to like screen a writer out. I would love to know more about what those are. Let's all just air our quibbles. Um, yeah, I, I guess if I thought about how I read, if I transposed how I read books onto how I have ice cream, I guess what I would do is, what I do with books, okay, so the book is the ice cream flavor, right? What right. I would do is, that flavor sounds interesting, give me a whole scoop and I will eat the whole thing, mm-hmm. whether I like it or not. I don't do, so weirdly, and if I ate, if I read books like I did ice cream, I'd be someone who just read the same kind of thing over and over again, which I also don't do. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, it doesn't hold up. I wonder if no. there's correlation between your ice cream selection process <laughs> and your book selection process. Is it more divergent like mine, or is it more convergent <laughs> where you you eat your ice cream, you select your ice cream like you select your books? You like know? our tasters and excerpt people, mm-hmm. it, it, is the overlap greater? Well, because you you diverge differently but also diverge because it sounds like you do some tasting you, you like do. to try the rum raisin gelato that's olive oil with whatever yeah i want to try it. right i want to try your like lavender lemon sorbet but i want to know before i commit to a whole cone right of that but then sometimes i do just want the standby and mm-hmm. that i think this is very true to my reading style sometimes i am i want like I'm what I know. I just want a guaranteed hit, <laughs> you know, like something sure. that's going to be a fastball down the middle. And then sometimes I want to go for something totally different. But in those cases, I just dive into the book. And yeah, so I don't do the ice cream sample mm. of, uh, you know, books that are adventurous for me. I just get in there. And if I don't like it, then I just don't finish it. This is an ice cream divergent. Uh, discussion. So we were in the other day. It was a nice day. Michelle was off work early. So we just decided to go have ice cream after school, all four of us. It was a very mm-hmm. nice little outing. And we were looking at the Ben and Jerry's close to us, don't be creepy, um, about, <laughs> and we were looking at it. And I realized in talking to the kids about the flavors that I think there's only been one one new addition to the ice cream pantheon in my lifetime, where if you go into any ice cream store, they're probably going to have it. Um, so when I was a kid, you couldn't count on, you know, rainbow sherbet and chocolate chip and blah, blah, blah. Chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream did not exist mm. when I was eight. And now it's, now it's a standard. table stakes. Now it's table mm-hmm. stakes and ice cream. And I was like, I wonder this, God, I'm such a nerd. <laughs> I was like, I wonder, I wonder if that's average for a, an American life. Do you have one new, like... <laughs> Outside of the ice cream Big Bang where ice cream was invented and a bunch of stuff <laughs> happening, 
Like, is like, can you expect there to be one new ice cream addition sort of in your adult life? Interesting. After this, like, what are, what are the new standards? Because if you go into a place now and they don't have chocolate chip cookie dough, I think you'd be surprised, right? I it'd, think you'd you be would like too. not having chocolate or strawberry or something. Or how I, my. But that's the only one. That's the only one I could figure out. That's like yeah, that didn't exist when I was a kid. That I would now be surprised if they didn't have it. Baskin Robbins. I wonder how long is the typical gap between editions of canonical ice cream? Because Hmm. yeah, chocolate chip cookie dough was also not a thing when I was a kid or it was starting to become a thing. But like before that, when was the last new addition to table? I'm guessing mint chocolate chip, mint chocolate chip Mm. feels like a relative late comer. This green is very fifties. Like that was the color of your refrigerator in 1958. Yeah. Yeah. And then we probably some, some things have fallen out, right? <laughs> some things have fallen out. Like you can't get rum raisin anymore, but you could get rum raisin all the time when I was a kid. Hmm. Now, is it you like... You can see it, but it's not table stakes like I think it used to be. Is anyway. it like the condo thing of like... Or not that this wouldn't be condo, but there is an organizational technique that's like one in, one out. Like if you buy a yeah. new pair of shoes, you have to get rid of a pair of shoes. So maybe mm. like what if the addition of chocolate chip cookie dough resulted in yeah, the deletion right. of rum raisin? Mm, it's like the rainbow. There's only a certain number of colors in the rainbow, and you got to get rid of. You'd have to get rid of one to make room for another one. Yeah, that's not how rainbows work at all. I don't know what that means. With we should know. reassess the literary canon this way, though. Like there are plenty of things that oh. can be removed. Like the nightclub, could... one in, one out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure. <laughs> that's something for you. This is about chapters. It's relevant. Yeah, don't at listeners, me. if you would be screening out some particular style thing, I would like to know what it is. Yes. And you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. Yeah, and if you emailed me already saying style is what I choose, it, feel free to email again saying actually yeah, and, and give up. us a little additional detail. All right, let's do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, this is also, I mean, this is a combination of news and follow-up. Um, so the Macmillan CEO, John Sargent, wrote an open letter to libraries as this embargo takes effect tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, 
They do not appear to be walking it back. Well, we, this got dropped in one of our slacks, and I was saying, when I saw it was an email from the CEO, I was like, oh, this is, they're pulling the plug. That, that mm-hmm. was my first thought was, this is pulling the plug. And they're not. It is a, well, let's start with what we think that they intended this to do, and then what we think it actually did. Mm-hmm. I think that it was a way of saying, we've been listening, we've heard, and we're still doing it anyway. And it has that. I mean, I think that is the meta. That is the message. It's the, it's the text and the subtext here. Um, I think what it actually came across as was all of this whinging about what we're doing. A, we asked some people, and B, you shouldn't feel this way. I feel like that's how it came across. Um, but that's my. T- We've talked about this a little bit. Where yeah. were you at this particular you know, letter right now? I. For I don't think that this should have been written. Like I don't no. think that there is a version of this letter that would would have come across well. No, like short of your all you librarians are right, and we are taking it back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just because, like, I I think if you're if you're hearing all of this vocal criticism as Macmillan is, and you've got libraries boycotting you and you know that people are responding very seriously, like there's really no need to double down if you're, if you are just going to continue with the plan, Mm -hmm. like the move there then is like, let people express their opinions about it. And you continue with your plan as planned, like trying to this late in the game, like talk people back around to some understanding of what you're trying to do or what the problem set that you have is, is totally unproductive. And I think it comes, it comes across here as relatively condescending um, that like, I, I believe that Macmillan has a real set of problems they're trying to solve. I believe I also, that too. I believe yeah, that too. Yeah. And I also believe that libraries have a real set of problems that they're trying to solve and that Macmillan's solution creates some problems for libraries and that the librarians have responded by pushing back against that. Mm-hmm. But the move there is not for Macmillan to be like, well, maybe if we could just put some logic on your feelings, you know, which is what this kind of comes across. Like the, the CEO lays out like, well, you wanted perpetual access. And so we did this thing. And then you wanted to address concerns about your collections. And so we did this other thing. And he's trying to say, we have listened to you and worked with you in the past on other issues and concerns. And we are mm-hmm. trying to do the same thing here, but we also have our own problems to solve. And so like, this is where we're going. We're sticking here, but it comes across as like, we've given you these other things in the past. And like, why aren't you giving us the benefit of the doubt kind of, or why make such a big deal of it? And I think we're just at the place in the discourse about this where like, there are a lot of very valid arguments to be made about it, but there are also just a lot of feelings out there. And the CEO of the corporation that is the bad guy in this situation coming out and being like, well, 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 let's just address your feelings. Like you don't need those pesky feelings. We'll just throw Mm -hmm. some logic on them and recount what we've done before is just not helpful. Um, Like, I think that there was probably a failure of imagination on Macmillan's part to consider how this was going to come across and be received it's i think the intention was to lay out like we know you're upset here is our thinking and like 
let's try to remind you that we have worked with you on other things in the past. We don't just have like blatant disregard for libraries, but it just doesn't come across like it doesn't it doesn't land well. Yeah. And I think after thinking about it further in terms of messaging, like you and I have said, and I think my position, my own opinion is I could deal with a win, sort of a windowing period, I think. Um, I continue to think the movie metaphor is like you mm-hmm. buy at the theater, you wait for it to come out DVD that's in your library. I think as a as a user myself, that makes sense to me. And people have clearly disagreed with us, and will continue to take that outside for a second to look at the messaging. I think the difficult part here to message is the truth is difficult to message, and that makes that's just hard because the truth is what Macmillan is doing is making it more difficult to get front list titles close to the street date with the hope that a meaningful percentage of people that would seek it out in that window will then go buy it. So really, they're just trying to get people who would get it for no additional cost from their library. It's not free because of taxes, as people said, but for no additional cost. Your tax are going to pay for the library, whether or not the Macmillan title is there on street day and date or not. Getting some of those people to pony up for it in some other platform, you know, Audible or mm-hmm. get it from their books or whatever. That that's the truth of what they're trying to do. They're trying to take a they're trying to make it more difficult for readers to get the book when they want it with yep. the hopes of that the the next least painful thing will be to buy it. And I think that's a hard sell. I, just I think, think so too. I just think that's a very hard sell and I don't envy them the the messaging position take away for a minute whether or not it's I would I don't think my personal opinion about that I could live with this, I think, is separate from whether I think Macmillan should do this. Mm-hmm. I also think that's come become clear to me. I don't think this is this is all worth that. But if that's your message, then I think the thing to do would to be blunt, more blunt than saying here, because I'm going to quote here. It says, we are not trying to hurt libraries, semicolon. We are trying to balance the needs of the system in a new and complex world. That's obfuscating what's happening. They're not actually doing yeah, and they're they're saying we we need more money and this new system is costing us money and we don't want to pay it. And we'd rather mm-hmm. we, we're gonna try this. And maybe making a bottom line argument, like we're trying to stay in business, give some real numbers, you know, remind people that it does it's not just publishers but authors. Again, I don't think that would work, but I think it would at least get it rid of all this you know, this new brave new world and we're working with mm-hmm. you to figure it out. Well, you're, you are and you aren't because there's no version of this where your desired outcome matches up with anything anybody else likes. Yeah. And I think that, like, I believe them that they're not trying to hurt libraries, but the impact here is hurting libraries or that the libraries perceive hurt mm-hmm. and that this will be harmful. And so there's that intention versus impact issue of like, I think he could go a long way to be like, our intention is not to hurt libraries, but we understand that you are taking it that way. Like, yes. if you have to make a statement, you might as well just acknowledge the thing that the other party is telling you. I would love to see some numbers because it certainly feels like for Macmillan to continue going all the way in on this, like, it's got to be worth it to the bottom line to deal with all of this terrible PR that they're getting. Mm -hmm. And then I'm a little bit worried that it's not actually a big enough number to justify it, but I want to know, like, well, I've got some numbers for you. I'm going to spring these on you. I Mm. I didn't, I don't have the link in front of me, but I'll put it in the show notes. Um, This was from a couple years ago and someone got an interview with someone at Macmillan um, right on the heels of the initial test that they did. um, 
was finished. And so what they did is they had a Minotaur and Tor books, and one was the control group where they didn't window them, and one was windowed, right? We remember hearing mm-hmm. about this. They were going to do this experiment. And he didn't give absolute numbers, but gave um, relative numbers in which the ones, the titles that were windowed did sell meaningfully more books over the same period as the non-windowed Interesting. titles. Interesting. Okay. So it did sell meaningfully more. Um, so that's one piece. And another interesting piece, again, it's in percentage terms, so we don't know the relative piece. He said that there, Macmillan is now seeing that 45% of the digital reading of Macmillan's titles are happening through library platforms. 45%. Oh, I would wow. not have guessed it's that high. That seems like a high number to me. Yeah, um, that's very high. And library digital reading only represents about 15% of their digital revenue. So it sounds like on a per read basis, if I'm if I've got my logic right here, they're basically missing out on sixty six percent of the revenue if someone reads it through a library versus buying it themselves. I don't know if that's high or low. I'm not mm-hmm. sure, but it's me that does seem mm-hmm. meaningful across a whole bunch of titles. Now, the flip side is they said their revenue from digital lending through libraries was up eight hundred percent. Wow. So even if it's a small percentage, or, or even if it's a smaller percentage than you, it should be on a per-read basis, or they'd like it to be, I guess. The whole, there's a rising tide situation here. The thing I don't understand is, is there digital, lend, is there digital revenue up over some period of time? Like, has the library lending lessened their total revenue, or has it raised the whole thing, but it could be higher? Mm-hmm. If if it, if it wasn't so easy to to check out books from your library, so I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. Okay, I think great. It's a it's um something I hadn't seen before. And shout out to someone who runs a Patreon, and they do interviews around publishing stuff. And he got this interview, and someone would give them stats, which I haven't seen here. Yeah. Now I don't know if any of those stats. Actually, let me rephrase that. I very much don't believe any of that kind of statistical evidence would help here to say you know. We're, we're really, you know, we're, we're subsidizing libraries by taking a bath on this particular product. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone cares. No one cares about Macmillan's fortunes here. No. And somehow the messaging to work would have to get someone to understand their position. And they haven't provided, how painful is this to Macmillan is a question I still, we don't have a good answer to. Right, yeah. And if they're willing to just take the pain of dealing with all this PR and yeah. making the change, like I will, I think that there are, better versions of this statement that could have been made. I also think that it would have been better for them to just keep their mouths shut, like mm-hmm. to just have absorbed the feedback decided they weren't going to do anything about it because there's kind of like, we hear you and we've decided not to care <laughs> is yeah. not the thing that an aggrieved party ever feels better about. Right. Even if well, there's a long list of good reasons why they've decided not to care. Yeah, I guess. I, th- yeah, the, the messaging about like, here, well, here's what we're going to say. And the, the implied tone is we kind of expect you to shut up about it a little bit right now. Mm-hmm. Like, I am the first to admit we may be wrong, but we need to try this issue, issue. We look forward to talking with many of you in the weeks and months ahead as we all begin to understand the effects of our new policy. Is that... I don't know. There's There's something that feels... Disingenuous is too strong, but a little bit like, I don't know. I'd actually like them to be more forceful about 
we know this is going to hurt, but yeah. it's a critical issue for our company. And we think a critical issue for publishing that needs a radical solution. I personally would be much more amenable to that kind of discourse than mm-hmm. we look forward to talking with many of you in the weeks to come. Yeah, it's this sounds very much like we're going to roll on with the thing we decided to do. <laughs> this is the last time saying of it. <laughs> Right. You know, go away. And all yeah. those things you have said in this interim period have meant nothing to a change of us. So why would you continue talking to us? Right. Um, it does suggest on the book individual book buyer side, you might have some agency in a decision by just not buying Macmillan titles at all. Mm-hmm. Because then their stats will show they actually didn't help us. <laughs> you right. know, I mean, that the library boycott I don't think matters as much because they are looking to minimize cannibalization from library reads anyway, it really would have to show up in people saying, you know what? I'm not going to read Macmillan titles because they're doing this to my library. Um, They're doing to the libraries writ large. So I do wonder about if some sort of mass action or boycott or petition, is it on the library organizing side that would really matter? Um, I don't know. I don't know what it would look like otherwise, but so we'll see. Um, we continue to get feedback. I think one thing that came out of feedback from the question we asked about what would fair pricing look like? You know, mm. we read that thing from the ALA report. No one really has a good sense of that. And there's so many moving pieces. Like it depends on what you get for the price. No one is saying, at least that, that emailed us, that libraries should be able to buy a, lit, a digital copy for twelve ninety nine. And lend it out to as many people simultaneously as they want forever. Okay, well, no one's saying that. So if it's not that, what's the next thing? That's very difficult to understand. And the library systems are different and a whole bunch of different things. It does seem to me that were it possible, and I know there's a lot of um, complexity here, that some sort of metered reading would be the way to go um, if it could be tracked. Like for every time this book gets checked out in our library, we fork over a dollar to Macmillan. Again, I'm just making up numbers here. Because the stuff about licenses and blah, 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 like a perpetual license versus one that can is for two years versus 52 checkouts, it just seems yeah, it, so complicated that it whatever value that pricing strategy might have just disappears in the complexity of it. Yeah, it really seems like the license, the digital licensing thing could use a revisit or mm-hmm. disruption, especially as ebook and licensing stuff applies to libraries. Like that's just a very complicated situation. And I don't know that it needs to be that complicated. It feels like it just is because it's like, well, this is the system that we have. Like this is the way we came up with digital licensing, but it could be reimagined. Like this is not the only way to ever think about the way that eBooks exist and function and the ways that publishers could deal with libraries Mm -hmm. in that way. And I'd like to see somebody do those thought experiments. Yeah. And again, there's so many individual library systems has their own platforms and their own policies and their own budgets. Like there's not a great solution just because of how confederated local library systems yeah. are. Um, so anyway, uh, there's a link in the show notes to read the full statement there. I'm sure if you um, care about this issue at all, you will be frustrated by it. Um, let's do another sponsor. And we got some uh, TV news. I don't. It was it was a great day of reckoning for Game of Thrones it spinoffs. Was. Um, we got we got a we got a green light and a red light. So, the Game of Thrones prequel spinoff that was starring Naomi Watts hypothetically is dead, killed, gone. Um, it's uh, gone. It's gone um, 
The Way of the Dodo. But the other prequel, <laughs> this one about House Targaryen, um, based on George R. R. Martin's um, Fire and Blood, is going forward. Ordered straight to series, which for, that's the greenest of green lights, is my mm-hmm. understanding. Ordered straight to series, you're going to get more than one episode. You're going to get a full season, you know, probably six to 12 episodes of that. Whether or not it's because a second season is, would be up in the air, but that is going to happen. I, I was under the impression that the casting of Naomi Watts and that, that other one was further along. I'm surprised that the Naomi Watts was canceled and this other one wasn't, but that was, you know, that's how these things go. Um, I don't know if this was a loser leaves town situation, like which one they thought was going to be better and they were going to just pick that one because in the early days we, we were talking about there were, there were five under consideration. Was there a world in which if three of them seemed really good, they were going to make three or was it always going to be a bracket situation in which one was going to win and the other ones would be sort of naturally selected out? I don't know. But Yeah, I don't know either. It would are. seem to me that on the one side, you might not want to like dilute interest by having too many available. But on the other side, if the fan base is that hungry for it and you could get people to watch three series instead of just one, why not get them to watch three? Um, so we'll never yeah. know. <laughs> never know. I have to say that my... Um, barometer for IP saturation is completely screwed up after the Avengers Marvel stuff. I mean, there have been 24 or something Marvel movies since 2008, and I've seen every single one of them. And if one came out tomorrow, I would watch it. So I don't know what saturate. If you would have told me that in the 90s, like, you're insane. But I also went 30 years with three Star Wars movies. So I I thought, like, the desert was the oasis, I think, to some degree. (laughs) Um, And now, like... Could could it sustain three? I mean, people watch baseball. You know, people watch sixteen <laughs> NFL games every season. <laughs> it's true. So I don't know what the upper limit of IP is here. I feel like in this new world of content abundance, we're finding like our appetite for um, food is capacious uh, well, in this... a way that we didn't understand before. Yeah, to go back to our ice cream analogy like (laughs) if you know that you like the flavor (laughs) yeah and you're the kind of person who just wants to eat a lot of the same flavored ice cream like three more game of thrones series might be the thing for you my i think i'm on the other end of this where like my personal attention span for uh like extended universes of things and spinoffs and whatever is very low like i will watch five seasons of a show that I love, but even after five, if I love it, it's still hard to like get me in for six or seven and have it still be exciting and good. And I think a spinoff is just a tougher sell. Like the only case where it's ever worked for me is, um, the breaking bad spinoff with better Mm. call Saul, but it's also like a comp it's a full spinoff. It's like a completely different storyline with mostly different characters. It hasn't intersected with the world of breaking bad yet. Um, well, I, and it's good. I mean, not for nothing. And it's good, right. And, and it's, it's good. excellent TV, right. Um, I probably would have watched like a Mad Men spinoff about Peggy and Joan going to open up their own shop. Um, mm-hmm. But like, there's, I don't think there's anything in my media consumption life that I would be excited to hear they were developing five different spinoffs of. So I just cannot relate to like to how that would work. But Game of Thrones and HBO clearly have some information that I don't well, have. Well, <laughs> or they do, or they agree with you. Like, we can do one spinoff. This is yeah. the Better Call Saul of Game of Thrones is a way they could be thinking about it. I guess I was more thinking in terms of if they could get people locked down and like the stories, mm. were they ready to flood the market? Or were Got they it. never ready to flood the market? Yeah. I, I don't a good have a, a good sense of that. Um, 
So anyway, there's that story too. And now I've lost my. What's our next story? I, I've lost my agenda. Okay. Well, there's we a back. couple places yeah. we can go because we're we're cooking here. Let's jump to Marie Kondo news yeah. because. Marie Kondo news. So Marie Kondo just like like stealthily on Instagram earlier this month revealed the cover of her upcoming book, Joy at Work. It is a Marie Kondo book about organizing your working life, uh, including physical and digital spaces. Mm. I'm very curious about how that's going to go, because as we have acknowledged you're in my beloved David Allen getting yes. things done. See, like that book is wonderful, but also it is really in need of an update for. Yeah, the update was okay. I read the update. It was better. I think digital tools just happen so fast. Yeah. It's impossible. Like That's stick with true. the theory on the whole, like don't tie yeah. yourself to pen and paper, but you can be theoretical and so choose your own. How, tools. Yeah. I'm curious about how Marie Kondo will handle this. I'm also surprised like that there wasn't a bigger deal made about this maybe there was a maybe there was announcements that there was a new Marie Kondo book coming at some point and I just missed that along with the rest of the internet but when this showed up on our contributor slack it seemed like everyone was hearing about it for the first time and so the book is coming out in spring of 2020 and the cover looks very nice and Mm. I'm I'm gonna read this I did not I don't feel the urge to condo my living space. I'm not going to get rid of half of my mm-hmm. socks and then start folding the remaining ones in a different way. Like that just did not ring my bells, but I'm really curious about what her approach to working life will be. Well, cause the central metaphor wouldn't seem to, to transport. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's, right. the, conf- that's the thing like I'm they, curious. They about. call it work because it's not guaranteed to spark joy. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I don't know. Like, you know, there's a lot of, any phenomenon this huge, especially one that seems to have a very simple central message, which mm-hmm. I think the life-changing magic of tidying, folding stuff aside, it's actually, you know, that's secondary to the, do, do the things you own and voluntarily choose to keep around you. Do something for you good. And joy mm-hmm. is the metaphor she used, yeah. but I don't think everything needs bringing. I mean, does my toilet bring my joy? Okay, fine. But like, <laughs> I'm not gonna get rid of it. But but the idea of like the things you have choices about, like in a real way, is probably wider than you think. And if you're holding on to stuff that you could get rid of, but they don't use and you don't like them and they don't make you feel better, why are you keeping them around? So like I've said before, I think on this show, like moving the burden of proof from mm-hmm. having to prove a reason to get rid of it to have a proof a, a, a needing a reason to keep it. You have to have an affirmative reason to keep it rather than to get rid of it. It seems to me to work for clutter and you know, the, the the accumulation that comes with life. At work, it seems to me a bigger problem, mm-hmm. a very lucrative problem. This book will sell no matter how good it is because people know condo and business books sell, um, especially ones that are sort of philosophical rather than specific. But like what's going to be the, the central heuristic that drives yeah. changing what you have and do at work? I'm genuinely curious to see in a non-starky way. I don't know what it is, but if she could provide something that would make people's life work at life feel more streamlined and sane, we would all, I mean, we could all benefit from that for sure. Yeah, I agree. I'm really looking forward to seeing what it will be. Um, more info about Where do you bookshop. Go? Mm-hmm. You know, in our continuing, we're now two months away, right? It's supposed to be January. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a long piece in Publishers Weekly about bookshop. I th- here's an interesting thing. Bookshop is a B Corp, and I don't know if people know about B Corps, but it's an interesting legal classification of business that 
has a central mission to benefit the public good. And that is not something I think I had known about before. I think it's very wise from a marketing point of view. And Mm -hmm. just, I think it does reflect what Bookshop is saying they want it to do. And they're thinking about selling books and bookstores are a public good, which I have my own thoughts about, but that's beyond the scope of what we want to <laughs> talk about. No, I mean, I okay, sure. Um, but that was very interesting because that means some mm-hmm. things about structure and profit and so on and so forth. That gives very much a publicly traded giant company with a billionaire at the top yep. versus a, I think there's a certain employee ownership situation that goes into, there, there's, there's several things. I used to know this. One of my favorite bakeries here in Portland is a, a B Corp when I looked it up. Um, it's a very interesting idea, it, and it gives you some constraints too, frankly, mm-hmm. that may impede your ability to succeed in in a classical way. But that part was interesting to me. Is there were there any other nuggets from this that jumped out to you? You know, I I thought that was interesting as well. That was where my first mm-hmm. note was, um, and that bookshop also is explicit in this piece that. Um, Indies are concerned, especially because independent bookstores did really like Goodreads, and then Goodreads was purchased by Amazon, um, about what would happen if Mm -hmm. Bookshop was sold. And they've made it clear that the company's corporate documents state that it will never be, that Bookshop will never be sold to Amazon or to any top U.S. retailer. Mm. Um, So really, they're really mission-minded here around building this around independent bookstores and having it be useful to independent bookstores and also being like very mindful of the concerns that independent bookstores have along with like not wanting to be perceived as competing with indies that don't participate. So like also Bookshop is not going to um, compete with indie commerce which builds websites for independent bookstores or like provides the back end for a lot of independent bookstores. Um, and it won't be then like, they don't want bookshop to be taken as competing with stores that do their own online sales and in-store pickup and ordering and stuff. So the feature set of bookshop is limited intentionally. And some of that is to, it sounds like a lot of it actually um, is there to assuage the concerns that bookstores would have maybe so that then they could get in the door with the rest of the bookstores that are interested in working Mm -hmm. with these. So um, it's, I think this is just a tough, it's a tough like line to be walking if your bookshop between um, wanting to benefit independent bookstores and wanting to provide a tool that's useful, but like indie bookstore owners are not a monolith who all have the same values and priorities Mm. and want to run their businesses the same way. So there's not like one solution that you can give to all independent bookstores that helps everyone. And I think we're in an interesting place now in indie bookstores where like many of them closed in the last, you know, decade ish um, when Amazon and eBooks and Kindles and everything were taking over and there was a rough period, but then a lot of new stores have opened and there's like an old guard of people who have been in the business for a long time. Some of them continuing to try new things, some of them stuck in their ways. And then a like new generation of um, younger folks who are digital natives and who understand the internet um, Mm -hmm. getting in there and trying new things. And I think it sounds like bookshop is trying to make everybody happy um, or make everybody comfortable. And that's a hard it's hard to have that goal because it's really hard to fulfill it um, yeah. and be and also be successful. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this shakes out. I do 
think that they're providing a valuable service to the stores that are going to use it. And um, a piece that a little note that I saw a little higher up in the piece mentions that one of the challenges is like if authors and publishers want to support indies and link to indie bound, there's that like, that's not really doing it well. Indie bounds affiliate program is not great. Um, and, linking to IndieBound then is basically forgoing revenue. And one of the things that independent bookstores say all the time is like, you know, if you're an author, don't just link to Amazon in all of your public materials. And Bookshop will give authors and publishers and folks promoting books an alternative um, Mm -hmm. where they can sell their books or promote their authors and also get a cut of the sales. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting... I think it's going to be interesting. I'm not sure what's going to happen, and yeah, I like it I like is that. Interesting. Yeah. I like I like that too. Um, so as we knew, digital audiobooks, but not eBooks, and it mm-hmm. will also discount, but not nearly as deeply as Amazon, which we knew. It has no plans to go beyond ten percent. Okay. So that was something I kind of wondered about. Like, if is this going to go well? Will they experiment with deeper discounting if they feel like that's competitive? I guess no plans means well, we didn't have a plan, but now we're doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's that way out of it. They also plan to experiment with various thresholds for free shipping and the free shipping thing. Amazon, I mean, the other thing I'm seeing now is like Amazon is going next day delivery in a whole bunch of places. Um, Whether or not that's good writ large is a question and I think feeds into Bookshop's messaging strategy. It's like Amazon does things that aren't good, don't support them. Mm -hmm. On a feature comparison, it's tough to compete with um, there for sure. I also don't know, like, here's another thing. They're, they're, they have no plans on building websites that compete with features of independent mm-hmm. bookstore sites like order online, pick up in the store. I was a little surprised to hear that, that you can't order from bookshop and then go pick it up on your indie. I guess I thought I took it as read as something that you could do, but mm. for whatever reason, be it technical or strategic or relational, where they don't want to compete with stores where you can do that, I guess I assumed that well, Pals isn't participating, I heard through a little birdie. Um, mm. I wasn't expecting them to, but they're not. But um, there's a couple of local bookstores that might have a, book, a bookshop.org account. I was thinking, well, I could order it and pick it up there if it's available for the same day um, and use Bookshop basically as a front end to see if my local non-Pals indies actually have something in stock to go pick it up. But that's not going to be a piece of it. So I was a little surprised to see that um, that, that wasn't happening. I, I, again, as I said before, I really want bookshop.org to get some traction and to be a viable alternative and help independent bookstores and the people who want to mm-hmm. patronize them do so in a way that they find, you know, better than our, their current options. I'm not sure it's going to work, but that's why you try things. Yeah. I think a great possible outcome here is that it rolls out well and that some of the folks who have been concerned about bookshop or resisting it because they worry that it will compete with what they're doing with indie commerce sites might Mm -hmm. see it work and be more open to trying it out or changing up their website or experimenting with it, like letting those early adopters go first (laughs) and Mm -hmm. watching it be successful and then uh, having some other folks be willing to try it. Like it will, if it's going to be a big thing. Um, and if they hope to compete with Amazon in some real capacity, it will require not, you know, it doesn't have to be a unanimous effort of independent bookstores, mm-hmm. but um, a significant portion of them, especially the ones that are large and that have big voices in their communities. Be um, That 
could make a large impact. So going to be cool to follow. I will look forward to poking around when it exists. Speaking of things that seem to exist at the nexus of philanthropy, altruism, mm. public good, and private interest, um, drama at the Little Free Library nonprofit organization, which Todd Bowl, who was the founder, who passed away, I believe, last year. Um, there's some drama around... I think philosophically what the Little Free Library movement, idea, organization is and should be and who, mm-hmm. should, who if anyone, should be in control of it. Is, is that fair to encapsulate what's going on here? Yeah, I think that there's some – yeah, I think there's confusion about what the mission is ultimately. Um, right. Todd Bowles – so Todd Bowles set up the first Little Free Library in front of his mom's home in Wisconsin in 2009. He trademarked the term Little Free Library in 2012, which is about the same time that it became a 501c3 nonprofit. And then this past June, um, his brother filed three separate applications for new trademarks regarding the term Little Free Library when used in connection with the words wooden boxes with a storage area for books and signs, Mm. non-luminous, whatever, and guest books and rubber stamps. And so if approved, those trademarks would allow the Little Free Library organization to stake trademark claims over all wooden book boxes, book boxes with signs and book boxes with guest books, which said which quote allows for monopolization of the little free library movement as a marketplace. And I just don't understand why you would want to do that. Like, unless this is one of those cases where to defend, like where you have Mm. to defend your trademark in some way in order to protect it for the future. But like the, the heart of little free library, as I understand it is communities sharing books with each other. Leave a book, take a book. You don't have one to leave. That's okay. Take two books. Like Mm -hmm. here are books. Let us share them with a spirit of like generosity and the notion of like someone new taking over the organization and then going after wooden structures in communities for sharing books that aren't technically labeled little free library or registered with little free library. Like what are they going to do? Go after those people and make them pay to register as little free Hmm. libraries like that just um, does not. I understand why there's conflict here because yeah. uh, because it, it, this doesn't feel to me like what Little Free Library is about. It does seem uh, the word overreach gets used um, further down in the piece. And like, what's going to happen? What what do they intend to do after these trademarks are approved? Um, and what does that indicate for the future of the community that that feel like they have community around Little Free Library if it becomes about enforcing what you can call a wooden structure that holds books and not doing something else. That piece seems to me absolutely bananas. That if I put out a little box on my porch with books in it, even if I didn't call it a little free library, forget for a moment that I think I should be able to do that, but even if that I could theoretically be covered by this trade, that seems (laughs) bananas to me. Like, imagine, talk about getting terrible PR. I mean, terrible PR. (laughs) Because you know what's going to happen is like someone's sweet grandma has a little a, kid, right? Has a little free library that's not a capital LFL little free library right. in their front yard, and they get slapped with 
a fine or a lawsuit. Like they're saying that they're asserting the trademark with for-profit businesses, not with other people just sharing in their community. We're not going to go out suing people for putting up a box, but like, but is that the force of law you? though? If you get a trademark, do you have to take right. the word for it? I, don't, I honestly don't understand that. Yeah. yeah, I don't either. I've, this feels confusing, I think, because it is confusing. Right. And, you know, just because you say you're not going to do it doesn't mean you can't write cease and desist letters that may not have force of law, but you can say to someone, we have a patent or whatever. Right. I don't know. It does. Sometimes legal things like this do look worse than they are. I mean, I, mm-hmm. having been a part of some things like this, it can feel like it's worse than they are, but sometimes it's the only avenue open to you. The bigger question to me is, what is the point of the Little Free Library organization? Because is it to make it easier for people to make these things? Um, and what does defending these do? Does it mean that you can sell your Little Free Library kit at a premium because it's an official Little Free Library mm. kit mm-hmm. versus a knockoff one on Amazon that says Little Free Library and it's half the price? And if that's what you're trying to do, then why? Is that just right. a way to make money? And then what do you what are you making that money for? Because it's a very simple idea. And I wonder if there even needs to be an organization supporting it. Like if I want to make a little free library, what institute – this is non-rhetorical. What support do I need from the LFL trademark patentpending.org organization beyond – they're not supplying me books. I guess there could be a kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, what are they doing exactly? I, I, don't, I don't understand that. Um, it, if they got this patent – it would make it so that the Little Free Libraries are n- – none of those words are true about their organization because it's not little because they have claims mm-hmm. over 90,000 wooden boxes. It's not free because you'd have to pay for it. And it's not a library because quiet is kept. These things are not libraries. These wooden book boxes are not libraries. I don't know what they are. I guess library is the closest <laughs> word we have for them. But they're not. Am I wrong? They're not yeah. libraries. No, you're, you're not wrong. It's very – Yeah. Um, so so anyway. that's a thing that's happening in the world this week. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I can't imagine – I really can't imagine a world in which they won this trademark, and they're all over my neighborhood, I have to say, that they're knocking mm-hmm. on doors with cease and desist letters. I, I really – that would blow me away that that's what the end goal of this is. I can't imagine it would be worth it to them to, to do it. There's something else they're worried about. Yeah. And I guess what's – I guess the uncertainty is they're not clear here what they're worried about. Right. Like, if it's not this, what are they worried about? If they said, kind of like here's the thing we're trying to prevent. There's these people saying official little free library stuff that they're selling online, and it's not. And the only way for us to, to like make sure people understand what they're getting, like trademarks, one of the points of trademarks is to protect the consumer. Right. That you're actually buying the thing you think you're buying. Yeah, there's a way where this is this is coming from good intentions and can be presented well, but yes. in the absence of indicating what the good intentions are and the intended outcome, it raises a lot of questions and concerns. Yeah. Correct. Um, all right. We've got one more sponsor to do, and then we'll, we'll, we'll bits and pieces here to wrap up. All right. Some more, I guess more library stuff, the tide around fines, Picking up steam, maybe mm-hmm. it's Bider Meinhof. Um, Bider Meinhof is the thing where you learn about a new um, cognitive um, bias, and then you see that cognitive bias everywhere. That's what Bader Meinhof is, mm-hmm. right? Um, <laughs> that's a joke for very few of you. <laughs> Look at that one. For uh, an audience of me. An audience of Rebecca. <laughs> um, 
So two stories here. So we talked about the Chicago libraries eliminating late fees. They saw book returns increase by 240%. Amazing. Um, unlocking latent book return energy. And I, I didn't see in this article the math about the, the lost revenue from library fines versus the lost expenditure to replace books that were essentially never going to be returned because people weren't going to pay the mm. fines. Because some of that, has, they were probably yeah. paying to replace books they were never going to get back and not getting the fine. So there's a little um, marginal value of just getting the books back themselves, I would think. Yeah, I think it's it's only been the pro- the policy, excuse me, has only been in effect for three weeks. And so, you know, that like there were people who just knew that they had unreturned mm-hmm. late library books in their houses and who didn't want to deal with fines for whatever reason. And this policy just meant people flooding those books back into the library system, which is great. Um, I'm glad they get the books. I saw a shorter story this week that didn't make it onto the agenda, but that can mm-hmm. quickly be summarized as uh, there was a library somewhere that's being like terrible terrorized by someone who's hiding all of the books that they perceive to have liberal agendas and like leaving notes in them. And when a cut, when a customer, when a patron asks the librarian for one of those, and then the library can't find the book because this person has hidden them all over the library, they have to order a new copy. And so it's costing that like this person's like library vigilanteism is costing the library money. Um, and so I was thinking about that, what those lost copies of books look like. And this is just that on a huge scale of books coming back into the library system. I wonder how many have already been replaced, you know, and now they have yeah. extras. Um, but I think this is a, a positive. I think this is a positive trend um, mm. that de- that removes, it doesn't even decrease, it removes a barrier to library use. and. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to see it kind of related to that is that Boston public libraries have eliminated late fines for users under the age of 18. The announcement came out just a few days ago on October 25th from a unanimous vote of the library's board of trustees. Um, So if you hold a youth library card with the Boston public Mm -hmm. library, you will not be subject to overdue fines. The policy change also removes all pending overdue fines um, and offers a one-time amnesty. So I bet Boston Public Library is also about to get some books back. <laughs> I hadn't seen that discussion before, amnesty of, of lost books, not just fines, but like if you lost them. Because yeah, that's sort of a different, it is a different yeah. use case. Like if I've lost, like I paid for a book, I think we lost or they lost. Mm-hmm in the system. And I was like, oh, is this isn't technically a late fine because it's not late. It's it right. gone. It's um, gone. So that's a different deal. Yeah. This next and, stat blew me away. Go and ahead. this is an intro. Yeah. This next stat is that during the 2019 fiscal year, about 90% of the 150,000 youth card holders were facing fines. An um, unbelievable stat. Mm-hmm. That I, I haven't been shocked by a stat like that in a while. I mean, 90%. Basically, I wonder what the you, basically you have a fine if you're under if you're a kid. Yeah, what's the I wonder? Library and friends help us out. Like on any given day, what percentage of library card holders have fines? Yeah, it's a good stat. I just don't know, but ninety percent seemed very high. The Multnomah County Library. So system, this is a policy. I was going to say our our local library oh, kids um, library cards. You can't get fines. Mm-hmm. They're just they're not part of the situation. So that would affect over because I know there are other systems like that. But I actually had forgotten 
I had thought that wave had already happened, like all over the country. Basically, you mm. couldn't get a fine if you were a kid. But the Chicago one reminded me. I think also Boston's symbolic, too, for, the, for library nerds out there. Really the first great American public library. So for the, Boston, the BPL to be going li- li- late fee free is a big it's a that's a big deal yeah. um so anyway anything else about that one 90 percent of their youth card holders getting some amnesty for those fine. that's just good job libraries i wonder how their message i mean are they emailing everyone like if you're a 16 year old are you how are you finding out that you no longer you that's a great bring your question back um because i'm guessing that that 240 percent at chicago would be higher if every single person who had a library card knew about it. Mm-hmm. Maybe they did, or maybe they did what they can, but it seems like you have a marketing and um, patron education campaign over time because so for so long it's been you know, our understanding that ice cream yeah. places have chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream <laughs> and you get, a light, you get a late fee. Man, we came no full more. circle. No more. Anything else you want to get to today? We kind of hit everything. Yeah, I don't. I think we're. Oh, let's do this blank book one. This is so. (laughs) This is you know. uh, The headline is Amazon sellers are self-publishing blank books and turning a big profit. And I was like, what kind of scam (laughs) is this going to be? It's not actually a scam. This is like smart self-publishers who are publishing journals and planners Mm -hmm. and calendars. And yes, sure those. Items are technically blank books, but Barnes and Noble and Amazon and every other bookstore you've ever been to also sell those kinds of blank books. And because the internet is what it is and like publishing software is as accessible as it is now, you can use software with like a, you can use like Adobe Illustrator to create, it says here, one of the person's processes is to create an interior with digitally drawn lines, dates, inspirational quotes. You can work up a cover using art that's available in the public domain. Then you SEO optimize the title and sell it as a journal. And so there's like nature walks journal and the blue dinosaur notebook and the little notebook of big ideas and a whole bunch of other things. And people are buying them. People love journals and calendars and planners. I think this is just smart. Like the headline should be like crafty. Local genius kills it. Right. Like, you don't need to slave away for five years writing a novel that you're going to self-publish and hope to get rich on Amazon. All you need to do is make a journal. And like, because we have produced some journals with Abrams publisher, I know Mm -hmm. that like the manufacturing process for that can be bonkers doing like working on the design and going through all of this stuff on the back end um, in a publishing house can take a long time. And if you have an idea for something like this and people are willing to buy it and you can put it together using software that's like readily available to you and turn it into a product that people want to buy, like, wh- why not? I um, mean, it's a little deceiving because really what this guy has done is become a publishing house of one person. Right, yeah. It, it's just the tools, the, the cost of the tools and the the availability of the shipping, storefront, and production are also distributed now mm-hmm. that you don't need the giant infrastructure of a publishing house. So in, in a way, it's the reducto ad absurdum example right. of the democratization of publishing because not yeah. only can they, is a publishing house of one, but they're not actually publishing anything. Right. 
it's very clever. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked it. I did have a moment after you dropped the link in there, as I said, I was in Pals the other day, and I was, you know, as I do, um, fantasizing over the $40 high-end moleskin mm-hmm. uh, well, thing, that if I only bought it, then I would be more productive and right. smart. If you just and find then the right remembering journal. this link, and I really felt like an idiot. <laughs> Not only am I going to thinking about buying the forty dollars journal, but I didn't think of the cash cow of um, selling journals for six ninety nine for a hundred mm-hmm. page blank. He's, he even says like, I, I, I was surprised to find that people pay six ninety nine for a hundred page blank journal, oh, but they do. But oh they yes, do. they pay so much more than that. I'm also in the moleskin journal club. <laughs> yeah. Club. How many you know, journals Jeff, do you, you have? Do the first design eight, your okay. own journal. <laughs> you should just design your own and sell it to yourself for six ninety nine. Do you think there's money in that selling journals to myself? Is that a is that a cash flow positive <laughs> business? Over under on the number of journals you have that have the first six pages filled out and the rest blank. Uh, mm, more than six, less than twelve. Yeah, I'm in the same ballpark. <laughs> I couldn't even tell you where all of them are, but if we cleaned out my office, that's what we would find. Probably they're half full of business ideas, and none of them were sell journals online. And that's that's the real sadness. And that's why we're not getting rich on Amazon. All right. Well, let's go eat um, 70 small candies and uh, celebrate. (laughs) Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody.